I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to just review the Scriptures beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1 into verse 7 of chapter 2. Just to remind ourselves of, of the creation of human beings. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed in it it will be food for you and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life I have given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and morning the sixth day and then verse 4 of chapter 2 this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day, the Lord God made the earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. As we continue to study how it was that God created human beings, and we begin to, to gain some insight and understanding in how we're made, a couple of things I want to remind us of. One is that, again, this is not merely for our intellectual amusement or entertainment or, or even to increase our knowledge. God is giving us information that is important for us in our walk with Him, in our lives. This, the, the kinds of things that we're talking about as we study Genesis uh, should make a difference in how we view life, how we value, you know, and I'll probably be saying that a lot as we go through this series, but sometimes when you feel like it's getting a little academic, you know, hang in there with me and, and re remember that the bottom line is God has given us his word not to merely inform us, but he's given us his word to transform us. It should make a difference to us. As we began to kind of delve into the creation of human beings last week and discovered our uniqueness, the fact that we actually hold a very special place in all of creation. There is no other creature that is mentioned in the Scripture that has a connection with God and with the planet. We stand uniquely in that role where we can have a relationship with God in the spiritual realm and a relationship to the earth in the physical realm and stand between the two in many respects as intermediaries. 
In fact, as we come to the end of chapter 1 and and we begin to understand God's intended purpose in our creation and His restored purpose in Jesus Christ, we realize that we were made to be co-regents on this planet, that we were given dominion by God and intended to be His ambassadors on the earth, ruling the earth according to His guidance and His leadership and His direction in our communion with Him. And when we're redeemed, I'm giving you snapshots of kind of things to come, but when we're redeemed and we're born again, we're actually brought back into that relationship where we become intermediaries. We become prayer warriors, intercessors, connecting with God, effecting life on this planet because we are once again in a position through prayer to touch the hand of God and the heart of God and connect with His purposes and pray them into existence in this natural, materialistic realm in which we live. So we hold this very unique position. And one of the things that I didn't get to to delve into very deeply is where I want to pick up this morning, because you're all familiar by now because it's permeated our society, came from the East, it's now permeating the West, and that's the the yin and yang symbol, you know, the circle with the little squiggly... um, Looks like a smiley face with a smile down the middle instead of around the bottom. And it's got... Oh, well, that's, that's close. It's missing the dots, but we're pretty close over there. There you go. And that symbol is intended to represent the tension that exists between light and dark, good and evil, uh, material and spirit. It's, it's intended to represent this kind of dynamic tension, and when life is balanced in the energies that they represent, then we are doing well. And when life is out of balance, well, we've got to you know, get our yin or our yang back together. We've got to kind of pull it back together. That kind of dualistic thinking actually has had its impact on the church almost from the beginning. John, when he writes his first letter near the end of the first century, we call it 1 John. When we get into 1 John, we find that he is actually writing to combat a mode of thinking that is already affecting the young church and that has affected us down through the centuries because human beings have always had this tendency to want to see life in this dualistic way. And the the bottom line to that is that matter and materialistic realm is somehow the the bad stuff, and spirit is good. And we, we have to learn to coexist in a way that that keeps that tension in the proper place. Notice, please, in Genesis 2-7 that the Scripture says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Remember in Genesis 1 that God made the universe. 
that God made the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and the plants and the seas and the land and the that God created the material universe. And when God created human beings, He created us from the dust. He is the one who said after that fact, it is very good. There is nothing intrinsically evil or wrong about the materialistic realm. God himself made it and said it's very good. And we share, in a part of our nature, we share that materialistic realm. Now, how is it that Christians get kind of bollocked up in this dualism? If you go back to 1 John, he is dealing with what uh, some people have called the pre-Gnostic heresy, because Gnosticism did not become full-blown under that title until the second century. But the, the, the seeds of it were already present in the thinking of the early church. And this is kind of how the thinking went. Doesn't the Bible say that our flesh gives us a lot of grief? Well, automatically, there's a confusion of terms because when Paul talks about the carnal nature and calls it the flesh, he's not talking about our bodies. He's talking about the tendency of our sin nature to want to gratify the body and the material side of life, the materialistic side of life. But anyway, there's, a, there's this thinking that the flesh is our problem, so that must mean the body is our problem. That must lend credence to the concept that matter is evil and spirit is good. And so, right toward the end of the first century, as this philosophy began to encroach upon the church, people who bought into that adopted one of two streams of thought. They said, matter is evil, spirit is good, my body is, is my problem, the spirit is good, I know how I'll solve my problem, I will punish my body, I'll become an ascetic, I'm going to go on extended fast, I'm going to beat myself, I'm going to do things to crush the body. I, in fact, maybe it'd be a good idea to go off and live in a cave somewhere and just get away from humanity and, and the, the fear, physical world altogether. And if I do that, I can be spiritually good. The only problem is, when you do that, the old saying, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly value, kind of comes into being. Because if you're hiding away being an, an ascetic in a monastery or a cave somewhere... You're not doing anyone any good. And furthermore, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself lived in the midst of the people, and the Gospels say, as the Jews observed Him, He is a friend of sinners. So how is it that He walked in a human body around in the midst of people and was not tainted by them, but instead brought the presence of God into their lives? The other way that some people handle the dilemma is even worse because some of them said this, well, the body is evil and there's nothing we can do to fix it, so we may as well let it do whatever it wants to do. But my spirit is good and that's what's saved and has a relationship with God now, so I will live for God with my spirit and I'll let my body do whatever it pleases. So then you had... Professing Christians 
involved in orgies and um, gorging themselves in feasts and being gluttonous and and, and being drunkards. And, And they were practicing this stuff saying, well, my body, there's nothing to be done for that. That's just the way it is. But when I'm sober and in my right mind, I have a good relationship with God. There's people that try that today. Did you know that? They, they try to they follow the same tactic. It's a, it's a mistaken understanding that my body is my problem instead of the carnal nature. And I don't know about you, but I know that that infected my thinking as I was growing up because this is what I heard growing up in a Christian home and in an evangelical church. If I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times. As long as I'm in the body, I'm going to sin. I will not be perfect until I get to heaven. So as long as I'm in the body, just deal with me. That was always the excuse for misbehavior. As long as I'm in the body, I'm going to sin. We need to understand as we consider God's very creation of us, that these physical bodies of ours are not the problem. These bodies are merely instruments. Something given to us to use. I'll explain that more fully in a little bit. But they're merely instruments. They respond to who's in charge. And even though, as a consequence of sin, we are more focused in the natural realm and the gratification of the flesh, the body itself is not the source of our trouble. The source of our trouble is the sin nature which is in charge inside of us, using our bodies to gratify the materialistic realm. And when we come to Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, give your members over to God to become instruments of righteousness. What members? Your eyes, your ears, your feet, your hands, your mouth, your body. Give your members to God to become instruments of righteousness because these bodies are not immoral, they're amoral. It depends on who's driving, who's in charge, how it reacts. God gave us our physical bodies. He also made us unique in that we hold this special relationship in creation that we're made in His image. And I want to make a distinction for you this morning that may be surprising to some of you, but it may perhaps also answer some questions. And that is the fact that the term soul is not used exclusively referring to human beings. In fact... The broadest understanding of the word soul is conscious life. And when you look at the Hebrew word nephesh, which is the word translated soul, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and man became a living soul or a living being. That word nephesh is also used in chapter 1 of the animals and the birds and the creation. They were living creatures as well. In fact, if you go to the end of chapter 1 and you find out the kinds of food that God made available to not only humans, but all other conscious life, what God made available for food were the plants and the fruits and the vegetables. The unconscious life. And so the word soul is not necessarily what makes us unique. Because animals are said to have a soul. Now, don't take that too far. (laughs) Don't necessarily expect to see uh, your favorite pet in heaven. I'm not going to go there and debate one way or the other. um, But I just, I don't have any biblical proof that my puppies are going to be in heaven. Um, although there are animals in heaven, because Jesus is going to come back riding this amazing white horse, and, and it had to come from somewhere, and we see animals kind of in there, but I'm, I'm just saying the fact that animals have a soul does not make them eternal or everlasting like human beings. In fact, that's not the distinction at all. The thing that makes us uniquely different is twofold. First of all, we are made in the image of God. No other creature is made in the image of God. We've talked about what that means. But we bear the image of God, the Imago Dei. We are after His likeness. We reason, in a sense, like the Lord. We We have emotions and sensitivity. We have the capacity to choose and make decisions. We are morally responsible. We are in the image of God. That is said about us and about no other creature. The other thing that that stands out is, it specifically says that when God shaped our bodies from the dust of the ground, He breathed into our nostrils His Breath, His Spirit, so that we, combined with the Spirit of God, became living beings. No other creature, though they breathe, no other creature is said to have the breath of God. We have the breath of God. And there's no question among all the biblical scholars that that I have read after. There's no question that the implication of, of the wording of the passage is that we bear the life of God in ourselves. We have His breath. We have His Spirit. That's what makes us unique. We bear His image and we have His Spirit. It's useful for us, therefore, to re- remember that we hold this unique place. We are both spiritual and material. We are not just spirit, like 
the angels who are spirits, they're ministering spirits. We are not just material or natural like the animals. We are both. And we stand in that unique place that God has made for us, as it were, between the heavenly and the earthly realm, in communication with God and in communication with the earth. Why, why are these things important? I believe that we need to understand our role. We need to understand our relationship to God and, and to one another and to the world. We need to understand the place that we were made to fill. We also need to recognize that when Adam and Eve sinned and chose to go their own way, that they forfeited some of that privilege and blessing, and it is the consequence of a lot of our trouble today. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but, but let me explain what I mean. When Adam and Eve sinned, the Scripture says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Now, they didn't drop dead onto the ground that very instant. They were still talking to one another. They were hiding from God. They were sewing leaves together to make coverings. Well, how did they die? Their spirit died. Their spirit died. They immediately lost that spiritual connection. They were cut off from the life of God. The Bible calls that place spiritual death where we can no longer apprehend the heavenly realm. And as a consequence, we only perceive life on the horizontal. We only see the natural. And because of that viewpoint, most people on this earth, including most believers, because... They have not allowed the Scripture to transform their thinking. Most people on this earth spend their lives trying to improve their condition here. To improve their comfort. To improve their uh, security. To try to build up their lot in life so that they have a better existence. Because most people can only see life on the horizontal. And they are unaware that there is something far more real. And so when the Bible tells us some things that only the spiritually alive and discerning can hear, most people say, that's craziness. That's nuts. You can't live like that. But I remind you in Hebrews chapter 11, in that great hall of fame of faith, remember where the writer of Hebrews, he goes back to, to uh, Enoch, and he goes to uh, Noah, and he goes to Abraham and Moses, and, and all the great heroes of the faith. And he says, these people left their families, and they left their homes, and they left their security. Abraham 
left Ur of the Chaldees as a wealthy man and went out as a nomad, not even knowing where he was going. Some of them died because they were following that strange voice of God. They gave up their own life, their bodies died. Some were martyred and put to death because of their passion for God. And the writer of Hebrews, as he comes to the end of that chapter, he puts it this way, And these went out not knowing where they were going, but they were looking for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, that is amazing insight. They were not looking for Chicago. They were looking for a city that had foundations. Do you see the point? Chicago has no foundations. It's on a planet that one day is going to melt with fervent heat. All the cities of the earth are temporary. Even by earthly standards. Give it a couple hundred years and you won't find it anymore, probably. Unless some archaeologist is digging through the ruins. All the things of the earth are temporary. The real foundations are in the heavenly realm. That's what lasts forever. That's what never changes. That's what is unshakable. This earth can be shaken. Earthquakes are on the rise. Have you been following that in the news? Look it up on on uh, Google or something someday. Number of earthquakes in a year. Watch the graph. One day it's all going to shake apart when judgment comes. But the foundations are in the eternal realm. That's where it counts. That's why Jesus said, when he was preaching his Sermon on the Mount, do not even think about tomorrow what you're going to eat, or what you're going to wear, or where you're going to sleep. Don't even concern yourself with that. Your Father knows that you need those things. But you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In other words, let your goals be in the spiritual realm. Hunger and thirst after God. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all this other stuff. As you have need of it, God will care for you. You know, we try, to, we try to figure out a way to get around that. But Jesus says, don't even think about it. Meaning, don't let it occupy your thoughts to, to any significant extent. You should be about the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added. And friends, when Adam and Eve turned away from God in the garden, and they died in their spirit that instant, and later on their bodies did drop dead, they completely lost the heavenly perspective. They lost the spiritual connection. 
they were no longer in touch with God in the realm of the Spirit, and they began to view life only through natural eyes. And it always is a skewed perspective. Most people have it. As a result of our unique creation, human beings are a trichotomy. Now, I know that I'm using words that are unfamiliar to many of you, and I, I don't know how to get around it, but I promise to explain them all. That's why we have dictionaries, and I'll be your, your walking, talking dictionary on Sunday morning. Okay? A trichotomy means that we have three parts as opposed to dichotomy, which means two parts. And I, and I want to be honest with you right up front, most Christian teachers and writers and commentators write as if the human being was only a two-part being, as if we only had a body and a soul. One of the reasons I have a problem with that is because the animals have bodies and souls. Okay? And it, it bothers me a little bit, but it actually fits well with the evolutionary model. Uh, if, you, if you happen to be a theistic evolutionist, do you know what that is? That's, a, that's an evolutionist who believes God did it. Okay? God's, God's the one behind it, but evolution is how it happened. Theistic evolutionists believe that one day some uh, weird genetic accident from, from some other primate resulted in a humanoid kind of person. And when that happened, that God said, I think I'll make that a man. I'm going to call that Adam. I kind of like that. So that's going to be man. And I'm going to adopt him. And, and I'm going to make him my special creature. That's literally what the, theistic evolutionists believe. That, that one day along the path, some primate evolved into one of those ancient Neanderthals or whatever, and, and God decided to adopt them as human beings, and that's where the story kind of starts. It's amazing to me that both one man and one woman evolved at the same time in the same place uh, to find each other and start the human race. No one ever goes into details about that. But theistic evolution lends itself very easily to just a body and a soul, because it's just like all the rest of the creatures. There are also people who believe that, who are not evolutionists, but they look at the Bible and they say, it's very, very hard for us to, to discern, as we read the Scriptures, between what is soulish and what is spiritual. We, we can't find that division. So we think that there's only a material and a non-material part to human beings, just two parts. And when it's talking about spiritual things and God, it, it's kind of the spirit. It's talked in terms of spirit. And when it's talking about uh, mind and will and emotions, it's probably talking about soul. But really, there's only one organ there. But there are two passages of Scripture besides Genesis 2-7. There are two passages of Scripture that clearly delineate between the two. 
One of them is found in Hebrews chapter 4, I believe it's verse 12, when in Hebrews um, 4.12 the scripture says, For the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and is able to divide asunder between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit. In other words, the scripture in that verse is kind of admitting that while the division is challenging, the word of God is able to, to cut the divide. The word of God can discern between soul and spirit. Another verse that is perhaps even more clear is 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where Paul says, May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete until the coming of Jesus Christ. And there Paul clearly makes a distinction between the three. Now why am I belaboring this point? And why am I telling you that it's important to understand that human beings are a trichotomy? Because I think we need to understand how we're wired, how we're put together to understand later how it is that salvation transforms us. But let me put it simply, and those of you that have heard me preaching for years, you've heard this before, but repeating is always good. It kind of cements the truth in. I am not my body. I have a body. I brought it to church with me this morning. That's how you know I'm here. If I had left my body at home, you would not know I'm here this morning. Are you with me? I have a body that I use while I'm on this earth as my means of communicating with you. And it's also what I use to get feedback from, from you and from my environment. My body has eyes to see and ears to hear, a tongue to taste, fingers and skin to touch and feel sensation, a nose to smell. I have these special senses in my body that take in the environment, feed me information. My brain interprets it, and that governs my choices and actions. And, and I'm using my tongue and, and vocal cords and breathing apparatus in order to take the, the things of my mind and translate them into language and phonate them out through my mouth so that you can hear me speak. And I'm doing all of that with my body. But I am not my body. Every time we're confronted with death as believers, we're, we're brought face to face with this reality. Jesus says, I am the res resurrection and the life. No one who believes in me, no one who believes in me will ever die. Now that's an amazing statement. But he's clearly talking about your person. Your person. As a follower of Jesus Christ who believes in Him, sitting in this room this morning, you will never die. You say, why do we still have funerals? Because your body will quit one day if Jesus tarries. But you are not your body. And you will not die. Even though your body will quit. I'm belaboring the point to help us understand that my body is the, is the vehicle that I use on this planet to 
for me to communicate and to exist and to have interaction in the horizontal plane. The thing that makes us different from all other creatures is that I also have a spirit. And listen carefully to my words. I have a spirit. I am not my spirit, but I have a spirit. I have a spirit that is my vehicle of communion in the spiritual world. It is in my spirit that I commune with God. God looks for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is my spirit that perceives things from God just as my body does here. We have spiritual eyes. Did you know that? When Peter had his vision, the sheet came down and and God said, Peter, rise and eat. How was he seeing that? It did, not, it did not exist in the material world. It was a vision. But God gave it to him in the Spirit. The Scripture says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I have a spiritual sense of taste. The Scripture says, He that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. It's not talking about these ears. You know, how many of you, when you hear God, hear Him with this ear? I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but because sometimes it does. But most of the time, you hear God with your spiritual ear, not with your physical ear. It's not sound waves from God's voice bouncing around in the air that strike your eardrum and set up those three little bones to stir up the fluid in your cochlear membrane and send a signal to your brainstem. That's not how you hear God. With your physical ear, you hear Him with the ear of the Spirit. And so my spirit has the same faculties, as it were, as my body does. And I am able in my spirit to commune with God. I'm able to to see the Lord in that realm. I'm able to hear Him. I'm able to touch Him and taste Him and see Him and savor Him and experience Him. In fact, the Bible even attributes these senses to God. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth. God doesn't have an eyeball with a, a cornea and a pupil and a lens and a retina and an optic nerve. God doesn't have one of those. But His eyes roam to and fro throughout the world because in the spiritual realm, God sees. There's mystery here, but clearly the Bible is trying to relate to us that in the spiritual realm, we are able to commune spirit to spirit. Just as in the physical realm, we're able to commune Body to body. Without your body, you're not going to have very much luck talking to people here. Communing, you're going to be short of that. Without your spirit, ah, and here's the rub. Without your spirit, you're not going to have a very easy time communing with God. Because if you're spiritually dead, you can't see Him, you can't hear Him, you can't taste Him, you can't touch Him, you can't sense Him. 
you're cut off from Him and from His life. And friends, when we are born again, it is that very life of God that comes back into this temple and brings us to life. It renews, regenerates. Regenerates means to bring to life again the dead spirit and animate it so that now I'm back in tune and in touch with God. And that is the essence of the new birth. And I think it's important for us to understand these things because the Scripture encourages us to cultivate the Spirit even not to the abuse but to the relative neglect of the body. What do I mean by that? Paul says this, bodily exercise has only a little benefit. But to exercise your spirit toward God is of great value. We are encouraged to build our spiritual life. We're encouraged to exercise it. We're encouraged to, to train it in the Word. We're encouraged to communicate with God. We're encouraged to become strong in spirit so that we are wise and discerning and have spiritual perception. We're encouraged to return to that state before the fall where Adam and Eve walked with God every day and experienced Him, and as a consequence were able to interact on the horizontal plane because they were in communion in the vertical plane. And I am confident that our prayer life and our intercession is directly related to this reality. That when I perceive and, and can catch hold of the heart of God and see Him in the spiritual realm, I know how to pray as, as a human being standing between God and earth. I know how to pray and bring God's will down to this earth that it can be done here even as it is in heaven. Not by my power, but by my prayer. As I stand in relationship between the people I see around me and the God with whom I commune and relate in spirit. That is the position we were supposed to fulfill. It got derailed in the fall of man. And it can be recovered and grow and develop in the new birth as we become restored to whole people. It also should help us understand, friends, and this is why I'm confident. I'm not saying that we should not be witnessing to the lost with our mouth. I forget who it was that said, I don't know, someone will tell me after the service, I'm sure. Witness to everyone you meet and occasionally use words. 
witness to everyone you meet, and occasionally use words. Lost people are blind and deaf and mute. They cannot feel. They cannot smell. They are totally isolated from anything in the spiritual realm. They cannot see. They cannot understand. It makes no sense. Unless the Spirit of God removes the scales from their eyes, they will not comprehend. Unless the Spirit of God quickens faith in their heart, they cannot believe. The cross makes no sense to them. The blood of Jesus Christ spilled at Calvary seems ludicrous and and in some ways vulgar. The whole thing defies human reason. And the Bible is a book of fairy tales and myths that's ludicrous at best. Its counsel is stupid and foolish. How do you get ahead by serving everybody? Oh, really? How do you become wealthy by giving it all away? Really? It doesn't make any sense. We must recognize the true condition of lost people who are the walking dead. And we must pray for them and live in front of them in a way that piques their curiosity, that causes them to say, Wait a minute. Everybody else acts like everybody else, but you don't act like everybody else. And the one thing that drills through the dullness of their dead spirit is love when it is witnessed unconditionally from the heart of God. That doesn't make sense. What is it you have, they ask. And then you can begin to talk because the Spirit of God is at work to open blind eyes and to unstop their ears. And there comes a window of opportunity when the Spirit is awakened and faith is available if they would see and believe. We are alive in spirit this morning because of Jesus Christ. We can interact in both realms. And because of that, we have become ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We have come from the heavenly kingdom this planet in our earthly lives to bear the light of the glory of God. We have a great treasure in these earthen bodies. And once again, we are restored to three-part beings 
spirit, soul, and body. Father, I pray this morning that you will give us eyes to see. We have spirits that have been made alive, but we just keep looking in the wrong direction. Give us a vertical perspective. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us spiritual understanding and perception. Restore our minds. Renew them to your ways and and your perception. Let us be a people who are looking for a city with foundations. Not frittering away our lives. Merely in the acquisition of material pursuit. But those who know how to live well in both realms and understand where the greater value lies. Lord, make us your ambassadors on this earth once again to bring you into the marketplace and into the office and the neighborhood and the factory and the highways. Lord, let us bring Jesus into those arenas by our spirit. Alive in Christ, I ask it in his precious name. Amen.